This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Components. Over 800 street fitments for handbars, bar mounts, clip-ons, brake pads, chains, and sprockets. Happy New Year and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast in 2024. On today's pod, we're going to look at some of the biggest storylines of the upcoming season in MotoGP. You can expect some Marquez chat, some rider market forecasts, and whether or not anyone actually catches Ducati this year. For 2024, we've also got some special KTM backing on the pod. Did you know that 2024 is the 30th anniversary of the KTM Duke range? The Austrians set a high bar with naked bikes with the original Duke in 1994 and the company of new models coming out with highly advanced tech specs and an unmistakable style and that hopelessly addictive level of torque. Look at KDM.com to find the full lineup. On today's podcast, we're also using a new recording platform. So if the audio is a little bit different to normal, we'll be endeavoring to improve that over the course of the next couple of pods. As ever on the pod that we've got Adam Wheeler, the editor of On Track Off Road. We've got MrMotorMatters.com, David Emmett, and the legend in his own living room today, Neil Morrison. Adam, happy new Supercross season. You've been back to work already and uh, we've already seen the first round of the Supercross season. Uh, we have, Steve. No great surprises. Jet Lawrence, very much the uh, Mar- Marquez of Supercross. He's already wi- uh, winning, taking victories for HRC. And uh, yeah, yeah, the year started. Dakar's running, of course, as well. But um, you mentioned on track off road. I have to point out that that will be slightly more dormant this year, as there are other projects going on. So um, I'll have to. I was looking into changing my Twitter handle actually, and I think it might actually be a bit risky to to get rid of it. But uh, we'll, we'll have to see. Okay, well, we'll change to Adam Wheeler Paddockcast Podcast. And uh, David, you're obviously back in the Netherlands now after a couple of weeks back in the UK but uh, are you counting down the days to the Sepang test yet? Uh, I well yeah that I am counting down the days to that I'm also counting down the days to the uh, Ducati launch or well not so much the Ducati launch we know what that's going to be Um, uh, more the Grassini launch Uh, we might actually get a chance to talk to Mark about the about the Ducati looking forward to that but yeah the uh, the test is the Sepang test is always pretty much the highlight of my uh, my season it's all downhill from there (laughs) <laughs> well, uh, Neil Morrison, you're obviously Belfast or Barcelona today. Let's kick it off like that. Barcelona, Steve. Back to the sunny climes. And uh, Neil, for for you, when we look forward to this season, what's the, the big thing that you're most excited about? Uh, I mean, how long do you have, Steve? There's quite a few things, actually. Um, I mean, there's the resurgence of Japan, I guess, but the potential resurgence of Japan, that's something to definitely keep an eye on. There's a very, very exciting new rookie uh, that's uh, stepped up to MotoGP that has two world championships under his belt already. And then, of course, possibly the greatest rider of all time moving to the best bike on the grid. Um, And we haven't really been able to say that, I don't think, for uh, quite some years. So, yeah, quite a bit. Um, I think that uh, we can get or that we can get excited about in the months ahead. Well, let's kick it off straight away then with Mark and Ducati. And uh, David, you've said that you're probably most excited about getting yourself to the Grassini launch in a couple of weeks' time. But how do you think Mark's going to get on with that GP23? Uh, well, I think there was an interview with um, uh, Nora Lancher of uh, Speedweek did a an interview with Gino Borsoi uh, earlier and... Uh, Borsoi basically said, um, if you don't think he's going to be fast on that bike, then you're bonkers. Um, it, it's, I mean, 
immediately, as soon as he gets used to it, I think there was a little bit of footage of him from uh, Dathan as well, talking about uh, getting used to the bike and adapting to the bike. Um, I think he's going to be fast sort of straight away. Uh, he was quickly sort of understanding the way that he needed to, to, to do the bike. He's still got work to do uh, uh, to adapt. Um, but given the fact that he was, what, fourth fastest, I think, at the test, um, and he was quick, after about five or six laps, then that that I don't think that bodes well for anyone else. I think it's going to be uh, pretty quick, just straight away. Do we really think he's going to be? Uh, I mean, I think he's the the greatest motorcycle racer I've ever seen. But are we getting ahead of ourselves by saying, "Yep, lock him in for the championship"? Well, I mean, like, yeah, but I mean, like, yes, lots of things can happen. But um, I mean, if you don't think he's going to be a factor in the championship if you don't think he's going to be a you know fighting for the championship then i think that would be extremely foolish yeah i think that's kind of a given um as long as mark can stay fit through the preseason and um keep himself relatively out of trouble in the, the opening races we don't see any kind of niggling injuries return injuries have obviously been his downfall for the past four seasons um but yeah i think if he can stay fit He's, he's definitely going to be a runner. Um, I'm not sure. Like, I have heard quite a few people in the paddock express their view that he's just going to smoke everyone and that it's going to be basically pointless for the rest of the competition to, to turn up. I think it was Carl Crutchlow actually was saying back in Mategi last year that he felt that um, it was just going to be one-way street and Mark was going to just rack up victories like like no one's business. But I'm not quite sure I'm... I'm I've bought into that point of view. I, I do think he's going to be seriously competitive. He's definitely going to be a title contender. There's no no doubt in my mind about that. But I do think he is coming up to coming up against um, a pretty formidable cast of characters, also on Ducatis, um, that have really kind of stepped up to become you know the MotoGP's top top men in his in his kind of absence away from the front. Um, and you know I don't think the likes of Pekka Banyaya or Jorge Martin are, are pushovers. You know I think they're going to really test Mark. So I think it'll be. A juicy, uh, a juicy season, and not just to see how Mark gets on, but to kind of see how the likes of Pet Banyaya and Martin react to Mark. I think we know too much about racing, and we've seen far too much sport to assume that this is going to be like a, an easy thing. Uh, you know, Mark has a lot to learn about the limits of the motorcycle, particularly with the Michelins and in different race scenarios and conditions. I mean, he's a vastly experienced racer now. I think he might actually be the most experienced on the grid. I mean, he has, this is his 17th Grand Prix season. Uh, he's going to be 31 years old just before the start of the year. It'll be his fifth manufacturer after Derby, KTM, Suter, and of course, Honda. And maybe we can even read something into his first round results. I mean, Mark's only ever won once at Qatar. If he comes out and blasts everybody away, on the Desmond Sadici at La Salle, then that could be a marker from the off. But I still think there's going to be some some big ups and downs. And I do wonder how different his bike will be to what Pekka Bagnaya has, who, as we've seen, is is the most rider who's in tune with that particular sort of motorcycle. I think the other thing is that, um, especially at the start of the season, all Mark has to do is get on, ride the bike, what the other Ducatis will have to do. They have some work to do. They have some development work to do. Um, uh, uh, Gigi Delinia at Valencia, uh, the Valencia said basically sort of like uh, in 2021, we were, uh, or sorry, in 22, we were too uh, conservative. In 23, or sorry, too aggressive. We changed too many things. In 23, we were too conservative. Didn't change very much at all. We're going to be a bit, bit more of a balance. So they will have more to say 
more things to do um that you know more things to test the the factory do, or well not the factory Ducati riders you know the the factory in Pramac everyone on a GP24 basically um than the, the than Grassini than Mark Marcus so he's just he literally just has to get on and ride it so i don't think we will see a difference until we get into uh, shall we say, certainly after the Jerez test, once we get back to Europe, um, maybe towards the second half of the championship. I think one thing that we have to bear in mind is that this will be the first time in Mark's MotoGP career that he's obviously riding a different manufacturer and also that he's riding outside his kind of um, super team that he's kind of built up and created from his days in Moto2. Um, and I think that that is something that will take a little bit of getting used to. I mean, obviously it will help that he has a, a great bike and he's probably going to be fast. But, um, you know, Mark has spent pretty much his entire adult life with the same group of uh, people, his, his, his adult working life, the same group of people. And that's not just whenever the sessions are ongoing or whenever it's uh, it's kind of race weekend. I mean, these are guys that he counts among his best friends, um, guys that he hangs out with pretty much every day at the circuit. I'm talking, of course, about the you know his side of the garage in the Repsol Honda team. Um, you know, he goes out for dinner with them. You would anytime you would walk past Honda hospitality, they'd all be in eating together at a big table of ten or twelve people. Um, and he's not going to have that. And yes, he's going to be in a team with Alex's brother, and I'm sure he's still going to keep up relations with those uh, with those other guys. But that is a pretty seismic change that he's going to have to adapt to himself. So um, I don't think that that's going to hold him back necessarily, but um, it is going to be something that, you know, it's not an ideal scenario. I think an ideal scenario would be Mark walking into the Grassini box with all of his team following him, and that's not really been allowed to happen. Yeah, I think it's one of those things, Neil, as well. Like, obviously, 2013, as a rookie, he had Christian Gabarini as his crew chief, had to prove that he could warrant having his crew around him from Moto2. It worked out perfectly for Mark that season, but it's a very different landscape now. I'm very interested to see what happens with the crew at Grassini, but not just Frankie Carcetti as the crew chief and the rest of the team around him is probably the most interesting thing because Carcetti's got his CV as a MotoGP world champion crew chief as well and did a good job at Grassini last year as well. So I think it's one of those ones for him. It's now a question of everyone else around the mechanics, the data engineers, but you can't give so much support that I, I veer, veer on the side that it's not going to be a big issue for Mark to jump into that team. But it is one of those question marks going into the year after 10 years with pretty much the same people around them 24-7. On the back of that, Steve, don't underestimate the political situation at Ducati because I'm sure they've already had more than one meeting about how they handle Mark what's going to happen with relations with the Grassini team. Um, I think it's quite significant that Paolo Ciabatti has moved away from MotoGP. He's now heading up sort of the, the fledgling MXGP uh, motocross effort for Ducati. So there's a little bit of a void there when it comes to upper management, uh, maybe handling different teams in the paddocks. We don't quite know well how paolo really fit into that kind of jigsaw puzzle but somebody else is going to have to do it now and um you know what happens if mark is struggling doesn't get on with the bike uh, it's not a great reflection of course perhaps on ducati even though they are world champions and they're dominating everything or if he goes on an incredible streak uh you know eclipses the factory team there's all sorts of um potential complications there for the brand one small thing that what that I wanted to mention is that um, he's also swapping garage sides, and that may may sound like something trivial, 
Um, but it isn't. It, the, the whole thing is so psychologically important, the side of the garage. It's also, uh, r- you know, routine and having, like, doing the same thing over and over again has become so important for riders. And for them to swap sides of the garage, all of a sudden, um, every, you know, he has to reach to his left rather than his right to get his helmet. Um, it, it, everything is suddenly is suddenly different. And that that. It's another small, it's a tiny little psychological pressure, but it's so small that it can have a really, really big effect. Yeah, and just going back to what you were saying about Chiabatti, I mean, Chiabatti was always the kind of, I felt the guy in the middle. Um, if if tempers kind of got frayed between rider and factory, Chiabatti, uh, Chiabatti was always a good guy in the middle that could kind of mediate and, and could almost put an armor on the shoulder of, of both parties. I remember when Davizioso and Delinia were really kind of at loggerheads at the uh, the end of 19 and then 2020, you know, Chiabatti was really able to see kind of both sides of the both sides of the argument and was able to kind of say, okay, well, you're maybe wrong here, but I also see your point of view and, you know, said that to the other party as well. Um, and the fact that he is moving away, I think that is a, that is a bit of a loss, obviously in a replacement coming in. Um, but, um, you know, Paolo is, is so experienced um, and it and just kind of has so much kind of management quality working with different people. Um, yeah, you feel that that maybe is, is something that Ducati will miss slightly. Yeah, he's a big personality as well. And that's the, I mean, obviously, Tardotti is a massive personality. Tardotti is Ducati Lenovo team manager. Um, uh, Ciabatti was the Ducati Corsi sporting director who oversaw all of Ducati's activities. So that's very, very, that's, you know, it, it's a very different role. And you need someone who can sort of be a counterweight to Delini, who can be a counterweight to Tardotti uh, to manage all of Ducati's riders and not just. Um, uh, you know, n- not just sort of the factory teams. Yeah, and the rider market for Ducati is one of the most interesting things going into next year as well. Ad. Obviously, Jorge Martin didn't get promoted to the factory team. That's going to be a chip on his shoulder, regardless of what bike he's got underneath him this year. He wants that seat or he wants a factory seat, you'd imagine. And just how soon do you think we're going to be able to see any news on that? Obviously, Fabio Quattararo, another interesting story in the rider market where is he going to end up going how quickly will that decision be made that determines Yamaha's future as well so these are the things that traditionally at the Sepang test we've been able to see a few riders announced for the following season yeah it was something that was drip fed through MotoGP last year Steve but then this year is really going to crank up and we've seen some weird tendencies um, in the last couple of seasons I think most notably 2016 before the first Grand Prix, Bradley Smith announced that he was going to be riding for KTM. Um, you know, they came into the championship for the start of 2017. So you had this very unusual scenario of a rider announcing they're departing a team even before like a first race had taken place. Uh, I wonder how, you know, quickly that will come round again. I mean, Paulo Spargaro was, I mean, he also announced his KTM contract at the Grand Prix of Catalonia, which must have been sort of round five or six as it usually is that year. And, you know, I I have no doubt and we have no clue, of course, but there are meetings going on behind closed doors. There are phone calls taking place, maybe PDFs being sent through emails or contracts. You know, things could already be sorted well before we even get to Qatar for that first Grand Prix this season. But um, I mean, kind of a a question for you guys, who, who are the top sort of three to five riders on the market? I mean, is Martin undoubtedly 
right at the, at the top of the pecking order or do we put Juan Mir or Fabio Quattararo? I mean, these these guys were the last two world champions before Bagnaia. Uh, I mean, Mark Marcus is at the top of the pe- pecking order because he always is. Um, then after that, I think it's... Um, it, it's also it's not just like who is the best rider it's also who is the most likely to want to move uh, we know that Jorge Martin will want to move because of you know he felt he feels like he hasn't been given his due respect this is people always move uh, in the end they always move because they they don't think they're being taken seriously by the manufacturers it's the way that they're treated by their manufacturers um fabio quartararo is desperate to start winning again he wants to see progress from uh, from yamaha that bike has to be a lot faster at um uh, at the sepang test than it has been so far uh, jorge martin will obviously be open i think we will see um i think what I think everyone is going to be waiting for the uh, results of the Sepang test because of the Sepang test will have an idea of where the various factories are, how much progress Yamaha have made. Um, uh, I think Fabio Quartararo would be willing to accept another uh, another season of um, not fighting for a championship as long as he's fighting for podiums and victories, uh, as long as the bike is competitive again. Um, that will so depending on where Yamaha is, then it starts to get to okay. Like so, Fabio Quartararo is either is or isn't going to be on the market. Jorge Martin is obviously going to be on the market, but Martin can win a championship where he is. You know, he doesn't need to move, um, and he's also going to be in the running for an A Bastianini seat. So it's going to be up to Bastianini to see where he is. Um, that, and I think Mark Marquez. One final thing I want to say about Mark Marquez is. Um, Everyone is saying, you know, is he going to go to KTM? Why would KTM give him a contract? You know, I mean, apart from the fact that he's Mark Marquez, there's there's not necessarily a good reason for him to do it. Because if they do, they have to choose him either over um, Pedro Acosta, their anointed uh, successor, or they have to choose him over uh, Brad Binder, who I think has got a contract till 26. You know, they're basically, he's he's their, uh, their, their boy. Um, Honda, I... Think it'll, I do think Mark might end up in his final year back at Honda, but I don't think next year or 25 is going to be his final year. I think he might go back, maybe he'll go back in 26, you know, maybe 27, but I think he's still got, uh, you know, another year somewhere else. And if, if he can win on that Grassini, why would he even go somewhere else? And why would Ducati upset the apple cart uh, by bringing in Mark Marquez over one of their younger riders, over Martin or over Bagnaia? Well, they're not going to get rid of Bagnaia or over Bastianini or uh, anyone else. Yeah, it's one of those ones, Dave, that the rider market, like you said, is determined by are you being respected or what's your motivation to move? Ducati has no real need to make a big change. Aprilia does. So I think Fabio Quattraro is probably going to be the most in-demand rider because Aprilia with the Piaggio group can pay top dollar for him and they've got a good bike, but they're also being limited with Vinales and Aleix on the bike at the moment because they haven't been able to make that step. They'll view it that Fabio can do that. Fabio could potentially look at it that the Aprilia is a significant step up on the Yamaha and that's why for me, he becomes the most in-demand rider. You mentioned Juan Mirad and... Mir can't possibly be in demand. Last year was so disastrous that he needs to come out the blocks, the Sepang test, the first five, six rounds of the year and show that he is still the rider that won that championship. 2020 is such a strange season as well that, you know, there's question marks about that season from him. So I think that Mir 
he's probably the most under pressure rider out there and not in terms of being able to give himself a chance of being able to get a good seat for Jorge Martin he'll be in demand because he's probably the fastest outright rider in MotoGP right now but are you going to move from that bike to a lesser bike that limits your chance of winning a world championship I think for Jorge Martin he has to just be focused up on getting himself onto an AS seat on the factory squad yeah, I think if if the factory seat in Ducati doesn't come off, then Martin will look to will look elsewhere. He did, I guess, have um, overtures from Yamaha at the start of two thousand and twenty three. They were their interest was well known in uh, in Jorge, but he had the good sense to kind of say, "Look, Yamaha is so far off where they need to be, where I need to be, uh, to fight for race wins and championships that, that it would not make sense to leave Ducati." But that might change considerably this year as Dave says depending on what they can provide and show at the Sepang test that they've made a massive step forward um, so yeah I think I think if if Martin doesn't get the factory seat in 25 in Ducati then he will certainly be be looking elsewhere because you get the impression that he already feels a little bit slighted a couple of comments at the end of last year saying something along the lines of you know if they haven't given me the jack the, the factory seat by now then <clears throat> i don't really know what else i can do because i've shown enough um to, to obviously fight for the championship up until the last race so yeah i think uh i think martin definitely fabio um would, would, would certainly be the two the two to really look at keep an eye on but then as dave says as well um what mark says or what mark does um you know i i i I think he'll be content to be in a, in a satellite team for one year, but will he be content to be in a satellite team for multiple seasons? I'm not really sure. And he's made a few comments as well that he will be on the lookout for a factory ride in 2025. Uh, yeah, I'm, I think as long as Mark is winning, he doesn't care. All he wants to do is win races. I mean, you know, he literally, he literally nearly sort of, you know, crippled himself trying to win races by coming back too early. But the, the one question for you, for you guys... If Fabio Quartararo moves, because there's lots of stuff we sort of like have a general idea about, but if Fabio Quartararo leaves Yamaha, who takes his seat? Martin, you'd guess. I mean, the, like we were saying before, he, as Neil mentioned, there's rumours that he's dissatisfied with Ducati. Uh, he's shown that he is perhaps not the most patient or loyal of riders. I mean, the factory contract, the money that goes with it, the prestige and the position, that has to be the ultimate allure rather than just being one of a packed stable at Ducati. But he's not going to win on a on a Yamaha, or well, if, maybe Dave. I mean, I mean if, maybe if in twenty six years. Yeah, yeah. Or but, sorry, twenty five. You know, but he wants to win now. I mean, you know, like he got he got the taste for it this year. I mean, like really, he came very close to winning a championship this year. And I think once you get that that taste, then it's very difficult to get rid of it. It, it you know, you start looking for ways to win rather than ways to make a lot of money. But Last the difference year, is we're in twenty twenty four. Oh, yeah okay the difference is dave i think it's perhaps easier to be more patient if you're earning say three and a half million compared to one million it wouldn't be three and a half it would be uh you know sort of eight nine it would be a lot more than uh than that yeah he he would get he would would get a considerably bigger payday at yamaha than he would in uh, in gcat that's for even in the factory team and he's never earned that type, type of money you know so i think that could also be a big draw as well yeah, it is always one of those things that you forget that it is a business for all the riders and the decisions do have to be made. 
based on that fact as well. And it will be interesting to see how that rider market chat sort of evolves over the course of the next couple of months. One thing that's evolved for us is we got Fly Racing back on the podcast for 2024. Fly are one of the biggest and most progressive companies in the off-road market. And this year, they've got the Fly Racing Formula Helmet. It's one of the most advanced motocross helmets ever created. And it's been tested on the most advanced equipment in the world. The Formula Helmet's overall performance is the best in class. And it's in the best in class in high-velocity crashes as well as rotational and low-speed impacts thanks to its adaptive impact system. They also have a new helmet on the market, the Formula S. The S means smart, and it contains a sensor that can automatically contact emergency services in the event of a crash. So that's a really cool bit of technology as well. So check out flyracing.com com to check that out let's uh, move on to one of the other big talking points obviously pedro acosta has been the most heralded rookie we've really had in a very long time in moto gp came in won the moto 3 championship as a rookie a lot of success in moto 2 obviously winning the championship last year as well and neil you've had to look up close at uh, acosta over the course of the last few years when you look at his prospects coming into moto gp do you think is he going to sink or is he going to swim I think he's going to swim. Um, I think there's been a few slightly unrealistic expectations uh, put on his shoulders already. Um, Mark Marquez was was one of them, I think. Uh, after Pedro won his title, Mark was basically saying, hey, there's no reason why Pedro can't do what I did in 2013. Uh, Binder's shown that the KTM is a, is a race-winning bike or a bike capable of challenging for race wins, so why can't Pedro be up there immediately? I think that is slightly unrealistic I think we're looking at a, a serious talent coming in but um, but yeah I don't think that um, we'll be seeing Pedro maybe fighting for race wins and, and taking Mark Marquez's uh, record as youngest ever MotoGP race winner away from him um, I think there is a possibility because he is still 19 he has a couple of races to do this um, but um, I think that's slightly unrealistic but yeah I, I, I can see him having a very impressive rookie season and um, I'm not sure um, whether he'll be given Brad Binder much to think about as, as kind of, you know, the, the the kind of battle for top KTM. But certainly I, I expect him to maybe be somewhere around Miller and uh, and his teammate at the start of this season. Um, and, I, you know, I think by mid-season we can start to think of Pedro maybe as a, as, a, as a kind of top 10 guy, maybe even a little bit higher. So that could be potentially putting a bit too much on his shoulders but I think um, he is a, is a guy that's shown himself capable of of uh, of learning and adapting to classes so ridiculously quickly we've seen how, how, how hard it is to do it in Moto2 and he was I think up there with the fastest guys in his first ever Moto2 test yeah it's uh, I, I mean if it came down to raw ability then I think you know you'd have to sort of say well what, what's Acosta capable of but as we know MotoGP is so much more technical now I mean there's a good video recently released by MotoGP.com uh, where he was basically saying you know where are the buttons and what do they do I mean he, he's going to have to discover the full sort of extent of the possibilities as a gas gas RC 16, as well as the Michelin tires, there's a whole mountain of learning there. I mean, I think Augusto Fernandez is going to be slightly bemused by the situation because there's going to be a lot of attention on Acosta and he's going to be sitting on the other side of the garage thinking, mate, I know what you're going to go through. It's not as easy as it looks. And um, I was looking up some of the results from the sort of previous world champions. I mean, as we know, Mark sort of won his second Grand Prix, finished on the podium in the first four Grand Prix, right, in the Repsol Honda back in 2013. But uh, if we look at Fabio Quartararo in his first season in 2019, he finished second in, well, basically his first podium in his seventh Grand Prix. In his first Grand Prix in Qatar, he was 16th, um, and he managed top 10 results 
in those races in between Los Salle and also the circuit, the Barcelona Catalunya. If you look at Joan Mir, I mean, it was 21 GPs he had on the Suzuki before he got on the podium and he had a, a best finish of fifth in his rookie season, which Augusto Fernandez, I mean, he pretty much beat that last year when he finished fourth at Le Mans, I think it was. Um, and Peko Bagnaya, I mean, he actually had five DNFs in his first seven GPs in MotoGP. Uh, and he reached a best position of fourth in his debut season. And kind of look what those guys went on to. And if there's anything to learn from Digia's story in 2023, is that you just have to give riders a bit of time. I mean, Dave was saying, who takes Fabio's seat if he leaves Yamaha? Uh, if Jack Miller is bounced out of KTM, you'd have to imagine that Acosta is going to be a prime candidate to slide into those orange colors. Gas Gas Red is going to be about an apprenticeship and learning year where you can't put any kind of expectation or um, real firm objective on his results. But I think 2025, him and Binder could be a really exciting team if, if things go quite well for Pedro and he doesn't get injured of course doesn't get too disillusioned which we've seen with with other riders in their first seasons yeah at the end after the Valencia test I wrote a piece about Pedro Acosta looking back at previous first tests of uh, other riders and um, if you look at it it's, a, it it's always really difficult just to compare the first test times of a rookie versus other riders because there's so many different factors that, are, that, that affect it including sometimes the fact that the first test there was a couple of times where the first test was at Jerez rather than Valencia but um, if you convert that to percentages um, then um, uh, Acosta's gap was 1.35% off of the fastest time of the test, um, which is pre much better than anyone else previously. If you compare, it to, for example, uh, Augusto Fernandez in 2022, he was 1.85% off. And the only person who's done better was Mark Marquez, uh, who was just over a percent off the fastest time of, um, uh, of the test. And that was obviously 2013, very different time, but also um, uh, very difficult conditions. Again, Acosta had sort of tricky conditions because it was very cold. At, um, even though it was sunny and dry, it was cold and you need to be very careful. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you can expect a lot from Acosta. He's not going to be like Mark Marquez where he's immediately on the podium, but I do think that he's going to be, you know, sort of um, very worrying. I think it's going to be sort of what, certainly worrying the other uh, the, the other KTM riders. They're going to feel uh, that they're going to really have to step up their game. I think it's quite interesting looking at some of the coverage that we have out here in Spain. Ed. I'm not sure if you've noticed this as well, but before I went home for Christmas, saw some uh, adverts for The Zone um, on television and basically selling their model. GP 2024 season, the prime, the main thing that they were leading with was Pedro Acosta steps up to MotoGP and it wasn't Mark Marquez is on a Ducati. It seems like the zone have put like so much investment in this guy being the next superstar that they're really banking on him making a, a massive impact. And that's obviously going to take a bit of getting used to for Pedro, but I do feel that that experience that he had in 2022 uh, when he stepped up to the Moto2 championship was basically um, thought of as the favourite from the very start and didn't quite manage to, to make good on those uh, expectations in the first six or seven races. I think that will be really valuable experience. Um, I think we saw him grow up a lot on the bike and off the bike last year. You could see he was a, quite a mature figure. Is always thinking. Aki Ayo told me that he sometimes thinks too much on the bike and doesn't go with his instinct enough. Um, 
so yeah, I think uh, I think we can expect some some really good things. But I, I I agree with Dave. I don't think it's going to be in an immediate podium. I don't even think it's going to be maybe an immediate a podium in the first half of the season. And I guess another thing to say is that so much of this depends on KTM and where they are because it's not always proved to be the the most rookie friendly bike in in recent years. You know, obviously Raúl and Remy had that awful year in two thousand and twenty. Two, um, Augusto had a, a largely decent year, if slightly unspectacular, last year. Um, you know, and I, I think a lot of it will fall on just how much KTM can improve with the off season as well. Well, one short thing, one thing that I did notice that was different with the Costa is he was using the uh, ride eye device right from the start. No other rookies do that. Generally, the what well, they, they they keep the rookies away from the ride eye devices until the second or the third test. They let them adapt to the bike first. So the fact that he was ready and willing to start off with the ride height device, I think, is a, is a sign of his riding intelligence. Yeah, and just one brief thing that I noticed from the uh, the test that, that Pedro was saying, I think he was 1.2 seconds off in 18th. doesn't sound amazing, but he did say afterwards that he was losing around half a second or maybe even more in the, uh, the final sector alone. So... In the first three sectors, he was there or thereabouts for his first day in a MotoGP machine, which is really quite something. So, um, yeah, you do feel there's going to be some very obvious areas where he'll have to improve. He'll have to work on his technique. Um, but, yeah, it wasn't that far away at, uh, at, at Valencia. You know, take off that long final left and the acceleration out of the, the, the final corner at, uh, at the Valencia track. And, uh, you know, Pedro was you know, in the ballpark, really. And that was, uh, that was quite remarkable for the, the very first day on the bike. And one of the things that's quite interesting for me, Neil, is when you look at Augusto's season, it was a good season. Like you said, it was a solid season. He had some really good performances, Le Mans and a few others. But he was regularly, I think his, his average grid position was on the sixth row. I'd be surprised if we see Pedro qualifying that far down the field as well. So I think it's one of those things that when you look at Pedro, we're going to see a better qualifying performance. If you qualify well in a tight field, you're probably going to perform better in the races as well. So for Acosta, I think it's going to be interesting to see where he lines up on the grid as much as anything else. One other thing about Pedro is that all the results that he's achieved, I mean, two championships in three years in GPs, I mean, it's obviously not to be sniffed at, but it's all come from the confines of Aki Ayo's team. So who's going to be the new Aki for Pedro? Uh, he's also going to have, outside of the MotoGP learning experience, all the fuss that comes with being a MotoGP rider from having to do all the extra content that Dorna want for promotional channels. That took a major step in 2023, and it looks like it will go even bigger in 2024. And also, I think, you know, at Costa, we were mentioning earlier, riders on the wanted lists for 2025 and 2026. You'd have to imagine he's also pretty high up there. That also could be a distracting factor. If KTM want to say... Pedro, stay with us. We'll offer you a two plus two or a three-year deal. Significantly increases pay. He could, they could still be outbid by the likes of Aprilia or maybe Repsol, Honda, or Yamaha, and that's something else that could, you know, be turning his head and be one of those sort of narratives that goes quite far into the season before he finally makes a decision. So, I think there's going to be a lot on his plate this year. Yeah, I think that's all fair points about Pedro. It's going to be interesting to see how he stacks up once the season gets underway. Dave, just to move on to some of our, our lesser topics for the season, but uh, big topics we're going to be focusing on all the way through the campaign. Repsol Honda, Adam just mentioned them there as well, but Luca Marini versus Joan Mayer. Who's going to be the top dog at Honda? 
I I think that's a difficult question, but I th- like I think Luca Marini at Honda is one of the best signings they've done. I think Mark Marquez leaving Repsol Honda is ironically one of the best things that could happen to Honda because Honda can no longer just lean on Marquez's talent. Um, it was clear, and certainly from what I've heard around uh, the way that Honda. Um, the way that Marini behaved at Repsol, the way that he sort of integrated into the garage. They were very impressed by him. He's very, very smart. I mean, we know this from from the debriefs. You know, after after losing Dovi um, uh, and his technical insights, uh, I was very sad indeed. And But Luca Marini has really stepped up. He's just brilliant, uh, explaining things very concisely because he thinks about and analyzes things very, uh, very clearly. Um uh, it's always hard to say when you know when you get an, a really analytical rider whether that comes at the cost of their speed or not. But you know, Marini has shown that he's very very fast, um, but he can also really help move uh, move the bike on. I think that's going to be a really really big uh, uh, a big thing. So I'm excited to see how he goes. Um, obviously, they've also swapped sides of the garage. Uh, Juan Mir now has Mark Marquez's crew. Um, that is also going to be interesting to see how he fits in there. I mean, we know that, uh, I mean, you know, Juan Mir won a world championship, so you can't doubt his talents, but maybe Mir needs a little bit extra, a little bit of extra help. He needs uh, help from the crew to sort of extract his talent, to find a way to, uh, to to motivate him to move because he was deeply unmotivated through 2023 because the because the bike was just and it kept throwing him off and, and hurting him. So um, I, I, I'm really looking forward to it. I keep hearing rumours of uh, lots of extra um, Honda engineers, HRC engineers being sent to the Sepang test. So I think it, it really looks like Honda are taking this incredibly seriously. Um, and they're going to start catching up quickly. Riders were very, you know, like both uh, Marini and um, and Mir were very happy with the uh, uh, with the bike at the Valencia test. So yeah, I, I think there's there's going to be real progress. HRC are going to catch up much more quickly than we expect. Dave was trying deeply unmotivated because of the bike, or was it because you were the only journalist turning up to his debriefs? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, a, a pro, I mean, a bit of both. You'd probably have to say, you know, like having. First of all, he gets thrown off a, a thrown off the bike, and you know, breaks various bits and pieces of it, and then he has to put up with with my stupid questions. So it can't be, uh, you know, it can't be just a an existence full of joy, really, can it? We all made the effort at some point last year, Dave. I mean, come on, we've seen Joanne sort of scraping the barrel when it comes to emotions and motivation and, and just general hope. But uh, I have a question for you, Dave. Do you think like HRC are in a position of transition still, you know, this season? Or do you think, you know, they could even come back to glories faster than we expect? Uh, that is a very good question. I do think, I mean, you also know... Um, we know that uh, there's been a lot of uh, changes behind the scenes. I can't remember. I think it's Kokubu who's been uh, moved out of uh, of HRC. Um, that will also have an impact. There's been a lot of uh, changes behind the scenes, like in, in within HRC, within the engineering department. Um, there's a lot of things going on which we can't, which which are not sort of immediately obvious. Um, Again, the problem is not the Repsol Honda team. The problem is uh, the interface between, or well, basically HRC taking taking comments seriously and losing Mark Marquez has been, as I said, 
the kick up the bum that they needed to actually to actually change. So I do think I think they're going to be more competitive than we had any right to expect based on their 2023 results. I mean, I don't think they're going to be challenging for a championship in 24, but I think um, by the end of the year, if a rider is patient, by the end of the season, the 2025 uh, seat, you know, bike could be a really exciting and interesting project. Neil, just before we move on from Honda as well, one of the things that's going to be quite interesting is to see what happens at LCR. And um, we've got Nakagami staying on the bike for another year. A lot of that's come down to the fact that riders like Ayagura didn't want to get onto the MotoGP bike from from all accounts. Where do you see that seat going in the future as well? Is this Nakagami's last chance? And then will we see another Japanese rider coming up from Moto2? Obviously, Sasaki's jumping onto a Moto2 bike this year as well. And then, like I said, someone like Agura, who's been that anointed future Honda MotoGP rider for a long time. Yeah, I've always been told that Agura wants to go up on his terms. He wants to go up as a, as a champion. He feels that that will uh, command extra respect from Honda engineers. Um, and I guess he was looking at the situation not just last year, but what it could be this year and thinking not, now is not the right time. Um, so I think if Agura does manage to, to nail this season, he will again be be kind of the favourite to take over from Taka Nakagami. I mean, Nakagami had a horrible season last year. Obviously, all Honda riders did, but Nakagami in particular was really, really struggling. Um, and But Agura at the same time also is facing some new challenges. I mean, he's gone to a new team for the first time in his Grand Prix career. He is changed chassis which is only confirmed at the last race last year he'll be riding the Boscos Guru instead of uh, a Calix so that's a big change I think he will still be working with a lot of his crew from the Honda Team Asia team um, so maybe that is something you know he'll be liberated in this new environment I heard there were one or two clashes that he had with, with some of the management in the, the Honda Team Asia squad and that's why he he decided to leave um, but yeah if, if, if he hits the ground running you would have to imagine he'll still um, he'll still be in contention for that seat and just briefly on Honda, I mean, um, I think a lot of the engineers were quite taken aback by just how how different the bike that they tested at Valencia was to the bike that they tested at uh, Misano in September. Um, there were some rumors about it being as much as eight kilos lighter than the the, the previous bike, um, and a lot of I think there were some comments to El Periodico, um, the Spanish newspaper, um, from some sources within the team saying that um, you know every part was was pretty much new, and they said you know if they, if they could do that in two months, then it really does show that they've actually got their finger right, and it's probably the first time that. We can say that about Honda for for some time. Let's see if uh, let's see if it pays off. But uh, certainly some some decent vibes coming out of there for the first time in a long time. Yeah, and that kind of brings us in nicely to one of the other big talking points coming into this season: the new MotoGP concessions. Obviously, Yamaha and Honda, two of the big beneficiaries of that, Dave. Yeah, I mean, they gain the most because they gain a lot of uh, extra testing. They gain uh, extra testing. They also gain the, the freedom to develop an engine. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to have like six different engines throughout the season. It just means that they will probably have time to refine their engine before the before the end of the season. Um, the one thing is the extra testing is great. Uh, it does mean that both Honda and Yamaha will be able to test at the shakedown test. Uh, but with 22 races... Um, even though Quattararo, Marini, Mir, uh, Rins uh, can all test um, 
outside of the season, the, the, there's not a lot of sort of free time for them actually to actually go testing. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they use that. They get um, extra aero update as well. Um, this this becomes um, you have to find that yeah again having concessions is not going to be enough. It's going to be how uh, about the way that you use them. It feels like Honda has a slightly better plan, and I think that Yamaha's biggest problem is that they're hampered by just having two bikes on the grid. Alex Rins looks like a, an upgrade to Franco Morbidelli. Um, he looks like it certainly comes in with a lot more optimism than Morbidelli. Morbidelli looked thoroughly miserable at, uh, at Yamaha. You know, like there were times where well, we were definitely um, uh, sort of concerned that they they should take his uh, shoelaces away before he spoke to us. Did you but... interview him as well, Dave? <laughs> no, this 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 one is not on me. This one is definitely not on me. Um, um, Morbidelli looks looks a lot more cheerful inside um, uh, uh, in, inside Pramac. Um, Alex Rins is comes with a very positive attitude. Also, he's still coming off an injury, so I think we'll we'll see the best of him. But I think. Um, yeah, how they use that, being able to have two more comparable sets of data might also be a lot more useful for uh, for Yamaha. But I still think they have a, a disadvantage just because of the fact they've only got two bikes on the grid and not four. Because also a Honda, LCR, Zarco, that is going to be that's going to be helpful. Zarco is very experienced and much more mature than he was from uh, previously. Yeah, I have to say just that you mentioned there Franco Dave I'm quite interested to see what happens with him because what one podium in three years I mentioned about 2020 being such a unique season for Juan Mir it was unique for Franco as well and he had the bike advantage with Yamaha at that stage as well with the older bike so he's really in put up or shut up time he's got a good bike with Ducati be interesting to see how he fares and just before we finish up you're actually on your way to Austria pretty soon to KTM HQ and uh, it kind of brings us nicely to one of the other big things coming into this season is this the year where KTM make that step Brad Binder becomes the championship contender that uh, I think everyone believes he can be yes Steve I think there's a case for it Uh, I mean Binder didn't win a Grand Prix last year uh, but you know he's finished 11th 6th 6th and he moved up to 4th you know without dispute or discussion he is KTM's lead rider uh, evidenced by the fact that him and Bagnaia are, are riders most firmly off the market for the coming seasons and uh, I, I think he got a combined total of like eight podiums won two of the sprints if KTM you know they made a, a huge step with a carbon chassis that was like you know one of their biggest innovations in 2023 you have to wonder what they got up their sleeve not only for the Sepang test but also for you know Qatar moving into the first Grand Prix because they showed again last year that they were able to react quickly to stuff I think the RC16 is probably going to be more competitive than it has been um, you know Binder had specific requests for the bike and eventually they sort of were solved as the season went on you know, he's he's married now in his personal life, even more settled. I, I think this has to be a big year for Binder. I really do. It's uh, he his future, as I said, is set with the team. But you know, you have to imagine he's going to be a more consistent podium threat. I mean, why not? Yeah, I think for me as a superbike journalist, I'm really interested in KTM this year because what happens with them going forward uh, for Acosta getting onto the factory seat? When does that happen? And what does that mean for someone like Jack Miller? Is he the guy that Ducati will look to replace Alvaro Bautista with in World Superbikes? What happens with Augusto Fernandez? The you know, is he gonna be kept on at gas gas going forward as well? Or is this gonna be a case of two years? We'll see what he can do. And then where does he end up? Does he go back to Moto Two? Does he 
potentially go back to Mark VDS and World Superbikes as well. Like there's a lot of riders for me that I'm really interested in keeping tabs with to see who's the next guy that comes across to my paddock because MotoGP's got so many great riders and then it's got the pipeline coming through of really talented kids coming into Moto3, good riders in Moto2. So I think for me, I'll be keeping a pretty close eye on KTM because that Miller seat in particular, that's the one that for a lot of people in the World Superbike paddock, they're kind of thinking that Miller could be that guy that replaces Bautista. Yeah, which would be obviously very interesting. Um, um, you know, what we hear, you know, it, it does sound like uh, Pedro could be pipelined into that uh, factory team if he if he has a, a decent start to this season for 2025. Um, but yeah, interesting on, on Binder, just to pick up a, a little bit on that, what Ad said. You know, I think it is a massive, massive year for Brad because there has been that kind of steady pr- improvement in his, his championship performances um he was hoping to be top three in the championship last year didn't quite manage that um he was a pretty consistent victory contender towards the end of the season but we did see a couple of occasions when he was in such promising positions and it just didn't quite manage to to work out for him and you could even say there was maybe one or two little small mistakes that that led to him not sealing the deal and i'm winning a race even you think back to i mean he was second for the majority of the the race in australia ended up finishing off the podium. Um, he was second in Thailand, but exceeded track limits on the final lap, was demoted a position to third. Um, and then, of course, at Valencia, when he was leading quite comfortably, um, and then, you know, was caught out down at, uh, down at turn 10 when he when he switched from, um, from left to right. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we all know Brad is a, a super talented rider, but this, I feel, is a year when he really has to show that he has kind of championship medal. And... Um, and maybe some questions will be asked of him if he doesn't fight for the championship this year. Yeah, and I think uh, that's probably enough of our big questions going into the 2024 campaign. We'll be back next week with a World Superbike podcast because we've got World Superbike testing coming up at the end of this month. And then we'll get ready for Dave's favorite time of the year. That's the Pang test. We've obviously got Dave, Neil and Adam on the road over the course of the next few weeks as well at different launches. So we'll try and get some interviews with them and give plenty of insight. You can also check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast. We've got a lot of good content on that over the course of the winter. Adam and Neil did a list of their favorite American riders. We talked about the impact of the sprint races. And uh, we've also had uh, plenty of interviews on that. Diego Gabellini, the crew chief for Fabio Quattararo. We have an interview with him. We've got plenty of other technical features there as well. So check out patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast. And once again, a big thank you to KTM, Rental Street and Fly Racing for getting involved with the podcast for 2024. And uh, we'll be back next week with that Superbike show. 